Hello, and welcome to From the Bastille to Berlin, a podcast about the Western world in an age of ideology. This episode, we're going to take a break from the master outline and talk about something in depth. As you know, there are a lot of topics that I've had to gloss over in my rush to get to 1789, but once in a while it's good to take a slight detour from the main narrative and talk about important developments. So today I'm going to be talking in more depth about the scientific revolution of the 17th century, which I mentioned in the last episode. I say the 17th century because that's when most of it happened. But to really talk about it, I have to talk about a couple of inventions that came into their own in the 16th century. The first is the printing press. Johannes Gutenberg invented movable type that allowed books and other written materials to be produced more cheaply on a massive scale. But no one had figured out really how to monetize it. I mean, there were printers who contracted with the church or produced special editions of the old classics for scholars and nobility, but these were very small markets and they didn't grow very fast. There were also indulgences, but we're about to talk about why that suddenly dropped off. The point is, after its initial growth spurt, printing was in a bad way by the early 16th century. But then something happened. In 1517, exactly 500 years ago, a German monk and professor of theology named Martin Luther posted 95 complaints about the state of the church, hoping for a theological discussion about indulgences. Instead, the printers got hold of it, translated it into German, and before you could say Reformation, copies of Luther's 95 Theses were being distributed throughout the Holy Roman Empire, and within three months, all of Europe was talking about them. Inadvertently, Luther had invented mass media. The theological debate that ensued saved the printing industry. It made print shops into centers of intellectual life. Luther himself carefully controlled the designs of publications so as to spread his message effectively at all levels. In addition, the sudden abundance of printed material in local languages contributed to the rise of literacy in all segments of society. And this meant that now anyone who was anyone was looking for reading material to start their own library. This is really where the idea of the Renaissance man comes from. Previously, only high nobility with purchasing power to buy expensive volumes, men like Frederico, the Duke of Urbino, could have hoped to have access to a large library. But now country squires, particularly in places like England, had the resources to purchase not just the old classics, but the latest in experimental science. The idea was that a really well-educated man would be competent to converse in every major discipline. To be a proper gentleman, you had to know Latin, Greek, know your philosophers, your theologians, be able to quote Cicero, and know what Aristotle said about everything. Plus, you wanted all these authors on your shelves so that you could refer to them whenever you needed to, and of course, impress your friends. But this was a short-lived phenomenon, and we're about to see why. The major point here is that the proliferation of printing catalyzed by the Reformation allowed the dissemination of new editions of the old authorities as well as radical new ideas. And it meant that for the first time, you could take these authorities out and check them. Here's what I mean. In the old days, books were too valuable to take out of the library. That is, if you could find them at all. And the people who were studying them weren't the ones putting them into practice in the real world either. But now, with print editions of, say, Aristotle's physics available, a curious engineer might be able to see whether his own observations matched what the old philosopher had said. So we come to the second invention, 
gunpowder. Now, gunpowder had been around for quite a while at this point, but the technology was just now coming into its own. The 1453 siege of Constantinople had proven the value of artillery in warfare as more than just a novelty, and every major power in Europe was trying to build better cannon. In 1531, a self-taught mathematician and ballistics engineer named Niccolo Fontana Tartaglia published a treatise that applied mathematical principles to the motion of cannonballs. You see, Aristotle had taught that the force with which a projectile is hurled means that it continues in a straight line until it runs out of energy, at which point it falls to the ground. What Tartaglia pointed out was that this simply didn't match up to the way that cannon actually worked. Instead, cannonballs were arcing, following a curving trajectory. There was some other force acting on the cannonballs than simply the power of the explosion from the cannon. And if you calculated to account for this force, you could hit your target far more accurately and, by the way, blow it to smithereens. Now, all of this might not have meant a whole lot, except for that business with Luther and the Protestants. The Holy Roman Emperor, you see, was a staunch Catholic, but he realized that Protestant ideas needed to be addressed and that the church needed to get its act together. So he went on down to Italy and politely asked Pope Clement to do something about it. Okay, more accurately, he marched into Italy with an army and sacked Rome and told the Pope that he was there to help him clean house at gunpoint. Clement then made an excellent career move and died right in the middle of negotiations. So the next Pope, Paul III, was much more amenable to Charles's suggestions, and he called a church council which would meet for nearly two decades and would see two more popes. The idea was that if the church was going to bring the Protestants to heel, they needed a united front. So they did what you, they could. They standardized the liturgy, got everyone on the same page theologically, and, most importantly for our story, they decided they needed a new calendar. A new calendar, I hear you ask? Why is this important? Well, because the life of the church was built around an annual cycle of feasts, and most people lived their lives by this calendar. But the trouble was, the calendar was off. People had begun to notice that their growing season just wasn't matching up with the calendar year the way it was supposed to. In particular, most of the church calendar was determined in relation to Easter. Actually, it still is. The problem, though, was that Easter occurs on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. So why is this a problem? I mean, after all, the equinox is March 22nd, and the phases of the moon are easy enough to figure out. Well, the trouble was, March 22nd was off. The actual solar equinox, you know, the day when the day and night are exactly 12 hours, was occurring weeks after the Julian calendar said it should. There was something going wrong. But... Someone had the answer to the Pope's problems. A Polish astronomer had done some math and figured out that there had been a few too many leap years between the birth of Christ and the present, and that if you adjusted the calendar by a couple of weeks and then stopped having leap years on the century, except once every 400 years, the problem would simply be fixed. The Pope was grateful and adopted the calendar we still use, which is known as the Gregorian calendar after Pope Gregory XIII. So, everyone's happy, right? We don't have anything more to talk about. Well, not quite. The trouble was, those figures were based on a mathematical model that made a crucial break with tradition. It assumed that the Earth went around the Sun. 
You see, the astronomer who came up with this new calendar idea was named Nicholas Copernicus, and he realized that the movements of the planets made more sense if they, as well as the Earth, were orbiting the Sun, rather than vice versa. Now this model flatly contradicted what astronomers from the Greeks to the Scholastics had all said. Ptolemy, the ancient Greek geographer and astronomer, had posited a system where the Sun, the Moon, and each of the planets were embedded in crystal spheres which each rotated independently to create the planetary motion that we see. Beyond those are the fixed stars, which are, well, fixed. They and the Earth don't move. And this model was reinforced by the authority of various authors across the centuries, up to and including, seemingly, scripture itself. After all, if the Earth wasn't literally the center of the universe, then why did God take such an interest in what went on there? Hmm? So while the church accepted Copernicus's mathematical models, they conveniently continued to deny the model of the universe that went with it. And then, a Danish astronomer named Tycho Brahe seemingly solved the problem for them. What if we posited that the planets orbit the sun, but the sun and moon both orbit the Earth? The model Tycho proposes was much more complicated than Copernicus, particularly when it came to the math but it seemingly did all the work, and most importantly, it solved the theological problem. But it did require people to jettison the crystal spheres, but no one really much minded. Yet this idea of heliocentric cosmology persisted. For one thing, it wasn't until Galileo's time that the Catholic Church would officially condemn it. But the reasons why it ended up doing so are much more complex than many people think. So let's talk about Galileo. Galileo Galilei was a mathematics professor from Pisa who made his name by doing experiments with falling objects. Aristotle had said that objects of different weights fall at different speeds. Seems reasonable. So Galileo decided to do a test. After all, if that's how it works, the test should bear it out. So he dropped everything and did the experiments. Actually, no, he dropped everything while doing the experiments. He dropped everything he could get his hands on, that is, from every height he could find, and took meticulous notes on it. And he concluded, surprise, surprise, that Aristotle was wrong. Objects fall at the same rate regardless of mass, and he had a huge amount of data to back this up. Of course, that wasn't the only innovation that put him on the map. You see, he had invented some new things in optics. Telescopes had been around for a while, but Galileo made them much more powerful by using mirrors and the latest in lens technology. He then sold this invention to unscrupulous merchants. The idea was that if you could see which ships were about to come into harbor before your competition, you could then buy or sell the right goods beforehand so that when they docked, you would make a killing. You know, good old-fashioned insider trading. Too bad Martha Stewart didn't live in the 17th century. Anyway, back to Galileo. But then he began to combine these two things, motion and astronomy. The telescopes he was building were powerful enough that he could get a closer look at celestial objects, like, say, oh, I don't know, the moons of Jupiter. And the mathematics of motion he was working out seemed to agree with Copernicus. But rather than dismiss this possibility, church officials politely asked Galileo to find physical proof. So he responded with a theory complete with predictions that the tides were caused by the motion of the Earth. Unfortunately, this theory didn't hold water, pun definitely intended, as a German astronomer named Johannes Kepler had posited the, as it turns out, correct theory that tides are caused by the motion of the moon in an elliptical orbit. 
But Galileo thought this was absurd, not only because the moon was too far away to affect water on Earth, but because he thought elliptical orbits were simply absurd. However, the church continued to bend over backwards to keep Galileo in the fold. Initially, the Pope ordered an inquiry which found that the Copernican system could be acceptable as a hypothetical model, but that as a literal account of the motions of the planets, eh, contrary to too much church tradition and interpretation of scripture. But in 1623, Urban VIII was elected Pope. Urban was much more sympathetic and invited Galileo to continue developing his line of reasoning. And so he put his foot in it. In 1632, Galileo published the Dialogue on the Two World Systems, which is, ostensibly, a discussion between Copernican and geocentric views of cosmology. Geocentric, by the way, just means Earth-centered. However, rather than presenting the best geocentric arguments of the time, as advocated by Tycho Brahe and his disciples, the geocentric position is represented by a defender of the Ptolemaic system, which by this point was no longer accepted by anyone. Naturally, this resulted in a strawman argument where the proponents of geocentrism are mocked and ridiculed. Well, that's awkward. And the trouble was, given what people knew at the time, Copernican theory wasn't a knockdown argument. True, it made the math a lot easier, but the observed phenomena didn't really leave any reason to favor one system over the other. In fact, the calculation of Galileo's opponents were actually more accurate than his, as Tycho had incorporated the idea of elliptical orbits into his system. Finally, every geocentrist of the time, from Tycho to the church hierarchy, was in agreement that the theory of geocentrism could be falsified if and only if stellar parallax could be observed. Alright, so what is stellar parallax? So, look around you and locate two objects. See them? Okay, now walk by them. Notice how they seem to move relative to each other. If you're driving, this is especially clear. As you drive past an object, it seems to move relative to other objects as you get closer. But the objects aren't moving. You are. That's what parallax is. From the perspective of Earth, as the Earth moves, the stars should seem to move except that they're so far away that the movement is so negligible that it wasn't observed until 1838. Tycho and his disciples said that they would accept Copernican theory when stars could be observed moving relative to one another, and the technology just didn't exist to observe this. Thankfully, by that time, heliocentric theory had been accepted for reasons that we're going to see in a few minutes. Meanwhile, the Pope was not amused. Galileo wasn't interested in having an open debate of his theory. Instead, he preferred to attack positions which no one held anymore. So Urban let the theological attack dogs off the leash, and Galileo was silenced. But elsewhere, a theory would develop that would vindicate Galileo's heliocentrism, if only by accident. But first, we have to talk about bacon. No, I don't mean delicious meat, I mean Sir Francis Bacon. Statesman, gentleman, and scholar. Bacon was one of those renaissance men that I talked about. You know, the classically educated guys who had the resources to play politics, do experiments, and write philosophy, and maybe plays in their spare time. And it's in the field of philosophy that Bacon has had the most impact. I say philosophy rather than science because Bacon's Novum Organum is not really a work of scientific observation, but posits the aims and methods of scientific inquiry. In other words, Bacon is a philosopher of science. Novum Organum is a radical departure from the way that science was conceived before. 
Aristotle had defined a science as any ordered body of human knowledge proceeding from first principles to conclusions, usually using deduction. The model here is geometry. So for Aristotle, philosophy was a science. Theology could be a science. Ethics could be a science. The method is that you start from what you know and proceed by deductive inference to what you don't know. But for Bacon, the problem is this often ignores the facts themselves. You can't just reason your way to knowledge about the natural world. You have to examine it and form conclusions based on observation and experimentation. Every belief, no matter how hallowed or venerable, has to be examined in this way. You have to design experiments carefully to isolate the element you want to study. A deductive method may well be good for abstract geometry, but the physical sciences have to deal with practical reality. Aristotle might have nice theories, but experimental science will help you blow your enemies to tiny bits with your cannon. So let's take Galileo's motion studies. Aristotle had pointed to the fact that a feather falls more slowly than a lead ball to illustrate the theory that objects of differing weights fall at differing speeds. But Galileo had pointed out the problem that you and I take for granted. The feather has more surface area spread over a larger area, so of course it generates more air resistance when it falls, and so falls more slowly. Instead, Galileo did his studies with wooden balls of differing weights and came up with the, as it turns out, correct conclusion that all objects fall at the same rate. So for Bacon, the reason why the Aristotelian method and its close relative, alchemy, had survived for so long was not because they were good explanations of the universe, but because they conform to what we expect. But, Bacon argued, we have to begin with a clean, or at least cleaner slate, if what we're studying is the empirical universe. If that's what we're studying, then our methods have to be equally empirical. Examine the facts, and then find an explanation. And to do this, we have to exercise what he calls the idols of the mind. These are the idols of the tribe, the idols of the cave, the idols of the marketplace, and the idols of the theater. Okay, what does that mean? More clearly, we have to rid ourselves of common sense notions that are only apparently true. We also have to beware of our own personal idiosyncrasies, which may get in the way of objectivity. Further, we have to discard sloppy language in favor of clear and precise terminology to avoid confusion and pseudo-problems that boil down to arguments over semantics. Finally, we should always, always be suspicious of given narratives and metaphysical systems which prejudice against what is actually before us in the things themselves. And something like this model of science has persisted to the present. So it is deeply ironic that the man who completed the scientific revolution was himself a proponent of medieval metaphysical systems and methods. I am talking, of course, about Isaac Newton. Now, I'm not going to talk about the wonderful and violent debate between the followers of Newton and the followers of the German philosopher Gottfried Leibniz debating over who invented calculus first, except to say that, interestingly, both have a snack food named for them, and both are worth checking out. Leibniz crackers or Fig Newtons, you have a veritable smorgasbord of delights. At any rate, Newton's main interest was in the interpretation of the biblical book of Revelation as well as studying alchemy. What, really? Not studying the laws of motion? No, that was his hobby. That's right. Newton developed a whole new theory that unified all of the previous science as well as a whole new branch of mathematics to explain the whole thing in his spare time. 
and you thought you were a nerd. And in doing so, he unified the whole period of experimentation that we've been talking about this entire episode. And he also provided the theoretical basis for heliocentrism. You see, he corrected the errors of earlier theorists like, say, oh, Galileo, while also giving a clear explanation of exactly why the Tychonic and Galilean models were empirically equivalent. It was the nail in the coffin of Aristotelian physics, as well as all of the old methods of doing science. Despite Newton's own interests, you know, things like alchemy, Baconian science, in some form, would now be the default, and the word science itself would increasingly be restricted to mean empirical science. Metaphysics would continue as a game for philosophers, but even most of them were radically revising their thoughts to explain a Newtonian world. And of course, that Newtonian world had little to do with Newton himself. In fact, it's not really a stretch to say that in the Enlightenment glorification of his achievement, the real Isaac Newton disappears into the myth of Isaac Newton. One of the most interesting examples of this is the romantic poet William Blake's 1795 painting of Newton working out the laws of motion. In this painting, which you should definitely check out, Newton sits at the bottom of the sea, bathed in unearthly light, fully nude, hunched over his work with a protractor in hand, like a classical god removed from the concerns and emotions of ordinary men. It's a strange, odd portrayal, and reflects the artist's own ambivalence about scientific discovery. But the point here is that it has little to do with the historical Isaac Newton. Newton the alchemist, Newton the apocalyptic interpreter of biblical text, the historical Isaac Newton has vanished. That Newton you see belonged to the old world, the world before science, the age of unreasoning faith, so said Newton's admirers. But with the old ways of the Dark Ages now gone, enlightened thought was now possible, and that light was the light of reason, the light of science, the light of Newton. Next time, it's back to the main narrative as we look at what was going on across the Atlantic in Britain's American colonies, where new ideas about government were being tested. Talk to you then.